0: You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Sermon text today is from Isaiah 6, 1 through 9a. Hear the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for." Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who will I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. And he replied, Go. This is, the, this is God's word.
1: Well, good morning, friends. I'll take a cue from Aaron. Uh, maybe not so much Chad, by his own admission, but from Aaron. As his, my name is Lance and I'm not one of the pastors here, um, but I am a member, and I am a, that guy's dad, happy to say, um, and I'm glad to be with you today to open God's word. Let me pray for us. Part of my prayer this morning is adapted from a prayer from uh, the book, The Valley of Vision, I'm sure some of you are familiar with. O holy and most gracious Father, At your throne we find mercy in time of need. We gather manna from your word and we are strengthened for every battle. Impress on our minds the shortness of time, the work to be engaged in, the nearness of eternity, and the fearful sin of despising your spirit. To that end, use God this weak vessel and the unfettered power of your word to build up your people by seeing you as you really are, and to forsake all lesser gods of our own designs. May it be so for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. It is is not without a little bit of fear and trembling that I come to preach this text and in this series of considering the throne of God and perhaps for some of you uh, I don't know a lot of you we have some guests here but uh, the the prayer that we just sang is our prayer that we would all see Christ and that through the preaching of God's word every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father that is our prayer so if our, our prayer for you if you don't yet know Christ is that if not today that this message would spur you on to continue to consider the claims of Christ. And for all of us, that we would behold Christ, indeed see him in his glory in some small way. To get us started here this morning, uh, I want you to imagine this scene and and you are making an acquaintance, a new acquaintance, and um, this is the kind of person who likes to just really cut to the chase and they just ask you this question, what's the most important thing about you? That would be a, an unusual and pretty, pretty forward question, but uh, it'll be a good one. I would appreciate a question like that. Someone really just cut into the chase. What is the most important thing about you? I wonder how you would answer that. Um, I personally agree with, uh, in, in spite of all of the many myriads uh, possible answers to that question, I agree with the author A.W. Tozer. Who says this, that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind is the most, when you think about God, is the most important thing about you. Literally, friends, I would suggest to you that literally everything else about us flows from that, whether we realize it or not, whether we consciously think about it or not. And so, in this message, really today, not really unlike Shane's message, because it's a very similar scene that we are considering before us this morning. Shane's message last week was it was this the same throne room, uh, the same God seated upon His throne, but the scene shifts fairly quickly to consider the Lamb. This morning, we're keeping our focus on the one seated on that throne, this God whom Isaiah sees high and lifted up, and his throne is filling the temple in such a remarkable way. And Isaiah, I I would suggest, this is kind of my premise coming into this message this morning, that that Isaiah, I believe, had such a profoundly life-altering, worldview-shaping experience that would compel him to say, to answer that question, the what is the most important thing about you, he would say the most important thing about me and what I think about God, the first thing that comes to mind is that God is holy. And everything else that he thought about God flowed from that central thought. In fact, I would argue that Isaiah's encounter with God left such a profound impact on him that he, I believe, likely coined a phrase, he coined a title for God that is y- almost uniquely exclusive to Isaiah. And that's what I'm using for my sermon title this morning. Excuse me, Well, this thing, there we go. The Holy One of Israel. This is a title for God that, that is almost exclusive to Isaiah. It's, he uses it some 30 times in the book depending on how you consider some of the truncated versions of that. Only six times outside of Isaiah do we find this title, the Holy One of Israel. One of those times is in 2 Kings and Isaiah is the speaker. Um, Three times in the Psalms and it's uncertain who the authors were so they may, may have post dated Isaiah and twice in Jeremiah who we also know came after Isaiah. I believe that this becomes an important lens by which we look at the rest of Isaiah's life and ministry so this morning what I'm doing really is mostly in the introduction in uh, providing a brief expositional outline of the flow of Isaiah's uh, encounter in what I would call uh, these seven discernible movements of Isaiah's vision and call in this text that we had read for us that Aaron read or uh, Patrick read sorry But then after just going through this brief flow of of looking at, at how this moves through this encounter, Isaiah moves through this encounter, then we're gonna drop in in a few other places in Isaiah where he draws on this encounter, I believe, and demonstrates five key gospel truths using this title, The Holy One of Israel. In, in Isaiah's text, in, in Isaiah chapter six, we begin with Isaiah beholding and considering the very character of God. And the one that stands out to him is that God is holy. I'm sorry, but this thing keeps falling off here. I don't, is there a way to, I don't know if it's too loose or too tight. God, Isaiah considers the character of God as holy. I saw the Lord high and lofty, And what Isaiah saw being proclaimed by these incredible creatures, that we'll come back to here in a moment, is that God is holy, 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 perhaps a reference to at least allow us to consider the the triune nature of God. Even at the end of the text, God says, "'Whom shall I send who will go for us?' Uh, Again, God speaking in the plural, but this holiness of God, we'll return to that momentarily. The second movement we come to is Isaiah's own conviction. Isaiah, in being confronted with this holy God, his first response is, woe is me, I am ruined, I am done. He knew that in God's presence that he was doomed. That that really is the word. I am ruined, I am doomed. He knew that God's judgment was in fact just. And so then comes on the heels of that Isaiah's own confession. He confesses before the Lord the reason why he is undone, why he is doomed, saying that I am unclean. And not only himself, but he knew that the people that he dwelt among were unclean, that he had a common lot among them. Isaiah knew that he lived among a people of unclean lips and that he was just numbered as one among them, that he was no different, not any better. He's not playing the comparison game. You know, We can always play a little bit of game of one-upsmanship and say, well, I'm not as bad as, as this guy is, but no, before this holy God, he was on equal ground before all others. This was the common condition of all mankind. But thanks be to God, that's not where the text ends, right? Um, Following right on the heels of that in Isaiah's recognition of his sinfulness, his uncleanness before this holy God, there is the cleansing that he receives. No doubt at God's own initiative, uh, I don't believe the seraphim took it upon himself to go take this coal from the altar. No doubt he was commissioned and given the... the, uh, the, uh, the commission himself to take that coal from the, uh, from the altar and go touch Isaiah's lips from the very place where the sacrifice for the atonement of sin was made. Isaiah's lips are cleansed. The coal touches his lips and God cleanses and changes us as he does Isaiah at the very point of need that is confessed before God in our sinfulness. And then the call. The call from the Lord comes from this throne. Having been cleansed and now in a position to be able to hear from God, Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord, who shall I send? And Isaiah then consecrates himself before this God and says, Lord, here I am. Please send me. And then he is commissioned by the Lord to go. It's helpful somewhat parenthetically but I think it's, it's important just to pause for a brief moment before we get into the, the rest of the, the points of this text to point out that I believe that this for, for those particularly interested in a theology of worship provides for us something of a template for how we approach God in our worship even corporately as we gather from week to week. There's a logical progression that we, we try to capture as we organize our worship services. In broad strokes, at least, not necessarily always in precise order, we see all, all of these characteristics in our worship service. We typically begin in acknowledging the character of God in some way, and that's the function of the call to worship as we begin reminded of who calls us and who this God is that we have come to gather at his invitation to come and worship. And so we begin with scripture and or with song and with a prayer, acknowledging the character of God, acknowledging that we we dare not come of our own initiative but at God's invitation to come and to worship him. And then we have opportunity for confe- uh, conviction and to recognize our confession, our need to, to offer to God our repentance and to recognize and call upon him in dependence on God, acknowledged in our prayers and confessions and petitions. And then we recognize that there is the cleansing. And this is where the, the, the bulk of the service acknowledges that we are here to celebrate the gospel. We celebrate the gospel in song and in corporate confessing of our creedal beliefs that unite us. But then there's the call. Now having understood the gospel and and placed ourselves underneath the gospel and we are in a position to hear from the word and so now we are prepared to hear the word prepared for us and that's what we are doing. But then at the conclusion of this message, we will then ourselves, like Isaiah, consecrate ourselves and receive the commissioning of the Lord as we give, uh, read one another the benediction and are sent out then, committing ourselves in response as we are sent out in communion. As we celebrate communion, we pray, we sing, we have the benediction and our dismissal to go likewise into the world. But now let's consider for a few moments how it is that Isaiah is impacted by this message, taking this title, the Holy One of Israel. And the way Isaiah uses this term, the Holy One of Israel, frames for us, I think, five gospel truths. Just as Isaiah's vision begins with the holy character of God, so too does our understanding of the gospel. Isaiah's vision begins with this uh, the word that I like to use, it's its this otherworldly experience, isn't it? It, it is an otherworldly encounter. Isaiah, it, we're not given the details of exactly how this transpires, but Isaiah does just say that he is in the temple. He describes himself as being in the temple. Was he literally there? Had he gone to the temple to to behold the Lord and to worship him, had he gone there and and once he was there and Isaiah goes into a trance and he receives this vision and some, we don't know the details, but Isaiah does describe that he is there in the temple and he sees this otherworldly experience. The scene is very similar. If you go back and read uh, Revelation chapter four and chapter five, it is very similar to what uh, Shane read for us last week. God and the throne room, uh, in, in the throne room of God and surrounding the throne are these otherworldly majestic creatures whose voice alone rattled Isaiah's teeth. I mean, it's a crazy scene, right? If we were to see or to hear these creatures alone ourselves, I would suggest we would be tempted to bow down and to worship them or to reverence them in some way, shape, or form. What is the response? Almost universally, I think, throughout the scriptures. Whenever someone is encountered by, by an angel, they, they are f- fearful and they are told, do not fear. And oftentimes, particularly in Revelation, John does what? He, he bows down even on one or two occasions and the angel says, no, no, don't, don't worship me. We might be inclined to, to give them reverence themselves, but these beings themselves, <laughs> they are shielding their faces from the glory of another the Lord. I don't know what made me think of this, but there was, uh, I just thought uh, this morning of, um, there's a scene in um, in one of the early, I think it's episode one or two of Star Wars, and uh, Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi are trying to get away. They're, they're in the water in this this sea vessel, and and there, there's this giant fish that is about to, to get them and they're fearful, and, but then another bigger fish gets that one, I think then another bigger monster grabs that one, right? And Qui-Gon says, uh, there's always a bigger fish. Not here. There is no bigger fish. The, the angels before whom we would tremble, the seraphim, they are giving glory and honor to this holy God and there is no one greater. The word is holy. Some of you uh, seminarians know the word is kadosh. It conveys so much more than purity. It is that, but it it speaks of God's transcendence. Again, I I think of this word, the the otherliness of God. And it distinguishes, it sets in concrete for us this creature-creator distinction. And so as we come later in the book of Isaiah to chapter 55, the Holy One of Israel is speaking in verses eight and nine and says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then two chapters later, the Holy One of Israel is speaking again. And note similar language here from in chapter six. For the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this, I live in a high and holy place. How can we fathom such a holy one? How do we come to grips and try to consider what this holy one is like? A.W. Tozer once more I think offers this helpful and cautionary note. He writes this, we cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural mind is blind to it. And then listen, he may fear, the natural man man may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. We do need to have this idea, this mindset, when we try to consider and to grasp an understanding of the holiness of God. But friends, please note, this, I believe, is where the gospel begins, and where it must begin. I would go so far as to say that the holiness of God is his most basic attribute. I know I kind of start walking on somewhat thin ice here when we try to set one attribute of God above another, and we do need to be careful, but I do believe this, that if, we, if God is not known as holy first, he cannot be known rightly at all. I do believe that. If he is not known as holy first, he cannot be known rightly at all. With all due respect to, uh, to Dane Ortland, and I know some of you are reading this book uh, Gentle and Lowly and Dane is making this, this case and I, I think rightly so if we understand it in its right perspective that the heart of God is inclined in grace and in humility and to come in meekness to sinners in need of a Savior and that is true. But I think one of the reasons why God's grace and his humility, his gentleness, his lowliness is so magnificent, is so glorious, is because that he is the holy God. So if God is not known as holy first, he cannot be known rightly at all. The gospel begins here. But the second thing Isaiah's vision entitled for God frames for us is a bit of a paradox compared to the first because as the Holy One of Israel, God desires relationship. God does desire relationship. We are compelled to ask how can we possibly know this Holy God? The Holy One of Israel is beyond human comprehension. How can we fleshly creatures bound to time and space know this one? We are neither self-existing nor self-sustaining. Every breath, every bite of food that we take into our bodies reminds us that we are dependent for our very being and and existence on that which is outside of us. How could we possibly grasp one who is spirit and eternally self-existent and simultaneously present everywhere? And like Isaiah, we must confess our own corruption, right? How could we possibly understand who, one who possesses absolute moral integrity? Uncompromised, indeed holy. And so the truth of the matter is this God is indeed unknowable apart from his initiative, apart from God's initiative. If this holy God did not desire to be known, he could not be. But he does, and so he can. Our only hope is for this holy one to choose to reveal to us and that himself to us, and that is the very thing that he has done. And it's what he did for Isaiah, he will do likewise for us. Clearly, it was God's initiative. uh, Isaiah didn't just wake up that morning and say, hey, I think I'll waltz waltz into God's presence. No, clearly, absolutely, God is the one who takes initiative to grant Isaiah this vision of his holy throne room. And here's how this truth bleeds through uh, in other places in the book. And the rest of, uh, of Isaiah 57, 15 that I read a moment ago The Holy One of Israel is saying this, for the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this, I live in a high and holy place and with the oppressed and lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the oppressed. Yes, indeed, this God desires relationship. And the title itself implies this very thing too, doesn't it? He is the Holy One, what? Of Israel transcendent yes but personally involved in his creation and not just with his creation in general this transcendent god calls out a people to be his particular possession and to covenant with them as their god and so we read in isaiah 12:6 the holy one of israel is among you in his greatness in isaiah 43:15 i am the lord your holy one the creator of israel your king And then a few chapters later in chapter 49, Isaiah refers to God as the Holy One who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Oh, what magnificence that this Holy One has condescended to choose a people to draw to himself. It is a paradox, separate and yet in special relationship to a particular people. And of course, as we come to the New Testament, that is us, friends, the church. This is the language that Peter uses to describe the church today in 1 Peter chapter 2. And it's language that is drawn explicitly from God's purposes for his people from the Old Testament. When Peter writes, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. But before we get too comfortable here, we have to remind ourselves that Isaiah's first response to this holy God was one of conviction and confession. For even though he knew that he was one of these people specially called out by God, he was still in his sin. And that's because Isaiah knew that as the holy one of Israel, God decrees judgment. God decrees judgment and it is just. Just as a master potter has rightful expectations for that which he creates or as a husband holds exclusive uh, rights to intimacy with his wife, this holy one rightly expects his chosen people to be holy themselves and to be faithful in their devotion. God has made very clear in both in the Old Testament and in the New that God expects and demands holiness that is his standard you shall be holy for I am holy but here's what Isaiah writes in chapter one of God's judgment of his chosen ones he says they have rebelled against me they have abandoned the Lord they have despised the holy one of Israel they have turned their backs on him And this is the message that Isaiah is commissioned at the end of uh, our passage in in verse 9 of Isaiah 6. Go, and the the Lord continues to go on and tell Isaiah that you are going to a stiff-necked people and they're not gonna hear you. They're not gonna wanna listen. And indeed, that's what we find. Even in the book of Isaiah, the people get Isaiah's message. And so we read in Isaiah 30 that they respond to Isaiah's message of this holy God. Do not prophesy to us what is right, pay attention to this and tremble with me at this response. Do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way, turn aside from the path. I'm reading the ESV. Sorry, you have the uh, CSB in front of you. The ESV says, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. The uh, CSB says, rid us of the Holy One of Israel. That is a terrifying thing to read, is it not? I shudder, shudder when I read that. In part because I hear in this response, I hear something of what we sometimes hear in a professing church today, don't we? And what Paul warned his protege Timothy in, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter four, When Timothy tells, uh, Paul tells Timothy, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That is indeed what we see in the professing church so often today. Even years ago, uh, almost 10 years ago, you and I were in New Hampshire and um, we had left for, it was Christmas actually, we had come down to visit Nate and Laura. They were in Virginia at the time still and while we were there, I received an email from the elder's wife. We had one other elder at the church at the time and uh, I received an email from the elder's ch- wife complaining about my preaching and saying that I talked about sin too much and that it was bothering her children And it was bothering her. That's what we have here. Turning away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Needless to say, they left the church, unfortunately. What is the response of this Holy One? Isaiah 5 Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes straw, and as dry grass shrivels in the flame, so their roots will become something rotten, and their blossoms will blow away like dust. For they have rejected the instruction of the Lord of armies, and they have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord's anger burned against his people. He raised his hand against them and struck them. The mountains quaked, and their corpses were like garbage in the streets. In all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is raised still to strike. It is the Holy One of Israel who again declares his judgment in Isaiah chapter 30. We don't have time to turn there. But lest this be a real downer of a message, there is good news. There is of course good news. Isaiah's cleansing with the coal from the altar reminds us that there is also rich grace to be found from this Holy One who demands holiness and judges sins. So Isaiah uses his title for God to also help us to understand that as the Holy One of Israel, God designs redemption. He designs redemption. Don't believe uh, the God that many see in the Bible, you know, that the, the God with a split personality that the Old Testament God is a God of wrath, the New Testament God is a God of mercy and grace, and that's the one everybody wants to gravitate to. Oh, friends, there is so much grace to be found in the Old Testament God as well. We see it right here. Beginning, in fact, in chapter 40 of, of the book of Isaiah, the title, the Holy One of Israel, is paired together with God's title as Redeemer six times. We only have time to consider two of them briefly. Isaiah 41, fear not you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Of Israel. God has bound himself to be faithful to the covenant that he has made with his people. And then two chapters later in in chapter 43, but now says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the same gospel that applies to us with no merit of our own, no more to contribute to our salvation than a worm, as God refers to Jacob in one of those texts a moment ago. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, because Jesus was himself forsaken and took upon himself the wrath of God to the point where he declares, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ became our redeemer at God's initiative and by God's grace when he received a full outpouring of God's wrath in the place of sinners for the sin of all those who would call upon him. We read in Isaiah 53, he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went away like sheep. We have all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all appreciate it, I think it's the es he says the Lord has laid on him our iniquity. That's what Paul says in Romans four and five, that God justifies the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly while we were yet sinners. This is the good grace of our God. And so Peter writes in 1 Peter two, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This Holy One of Israel designs redemption. So lastly, in light of all that he has done, in light of who this Holy One is, this last point is fitting, is it not? For Isaiah consecrates himself in response to God's call and commission because the Holy One of Israel deserves our devotion and praise. Knowing his own unworthiness and that of the people, Isaiah finds reason to rejoice and to praise And so we read these words in Isaiah, chapter 12, verses one, well, the entire chapter, one through six. On that day you will say, I will give thanks to you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Indeed, God is my salvation. I will trust him and not be afraid. For the Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. You will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation and on that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, proclaim his name, make his works known among the peoples, declare that his name is exalted, sing to the Lord for he has done glorious things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry out and sing, citizen of Zion, and here's our title, for the Holy One of Israel is great among you in his greatness. And Isaiah then looks forward to the day when this shall be the norm. This praise from, the, from all the people shall be the norm in Isaiah 29. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. He is worthy. And so that is why in those two glorious texts that were read for us last week in Shane's message in Revelation four and Revelation five, there are these words, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is he. This praise of God is in fact the very purpose for our redemption. Once again, we turn to 1 Peter two, you are a people for his own possession, why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why we belong to God, that we would declare his praises. Coming from a people who are being sanctified, who are holy, who are being set apart, and being made holy, clothed in the righteousness of God. As we wrap up this morning, have you come to know this Holy One of Israel? And if you have, be reminded of these central gospel truths that we may indeed know this Holy One who is incomprehensible. We may know Him not completely, but sufficiently. And understanding this one title of the God used by Isaiah frames the entire gospel of Jesus itself and it begins with God as holy, creator, ruler, having a rightful claim over all his creation. And this holy one desires relationship, created all things as an expression of his power. God has done this to pour out his love and relationship to a people, to know him and to enjoy him forever. That's his purpose for creating us, to be in relationship. but. God decrees judgment because we have spurned his love and grace and pursued lesser things. God's holiness reminds us of our need for redemption. And God has then therefore designed redemption. This holy one, his own arm has saved, his own arm has provided the way. The depth of our offense against this holy God meant that only the holy God could initiate the rescue with a perfect sacrifice, bearing God's wrath that we deserved. And so while God's holiness reminds us of our need for redemption, God's holiness reminds us of the price of our redemption. In Christ we are restored as God's treasured possession and clothed in his righteousness. And so he indeed deserves our praise. To live lives of holiness and to be commissioned to go in glad obedience and service King's Cross Church, this is our commission. This is our glad opportunity to offer ourselves like Isaiah, Lord, here am I, send me. And so we go, we are commissioned as ambassadors of this holy God to bear witness to the world of these things so that the name of the Holy One of Israel will be known and revered in every corner of the world. This is what Jesus taught us to pray, right? Hallowed is your name, oh God. Your name is holy and your will be done on earth. So we offer ourselves as we go and we're doing our, our Easter egg hunt and, and all the other endeavors that we are seeking to do, our uh, turkey drive that we had earlier and our very purpose for seeking out a place in, in Raleigh that would be able to reach many with the gospel. We don't know how long we'll be here, right? But however long we're here or if the Lord grows our numbers or closes this door for us to meet here, wherever God plants us, our mission is to proclaim the gospel beginning with an understanding of God as holy. God's holiness is what we are commissioned to bear to the world, friends, not just his grace. The reality of God's grace is magnified exponentially when we remember it is being extended by the Holy One enthroned in heaven. We dare not drop this part of the gospel from our message. Only briefly I have time to touch on just a couple of other quick things that I'll just kind of plant in your minds this morning by way of practical applications. It is God's holiness, friends, that we emulate. We are called to be holy for he is holy and this holiness is one of the keys to mending the brokenness of our homes, the fractured relationships in this world to broken people. God's holiness establishes, secondly, the character of his kingdom that the church is to prefigure. Living to reflect God's holy justice and righteousness in our lives and in our churches and in our service to one another demonstrates and prefigures to all what true human flourishing in God's kingdom looks like. It is a holy and just and good kingdom that will one day establish be established on earth with Christ on his throne. And so friends, I close with this one last reminder again. If God is to be known rightly at all, he must be known as holy first. Once we know him as holy, with hearts cleansed and transformed through the work of the gospel, we will then learn with Isaiah to shout and sing for joy, for great is the Holy One of Israel among us. Pray with me. Well, God, apart from you, we have no standard by which to measure ourselves so we smugly find others to compare ourselves to that make us look better in our own eyes. But drawing near to the fire of your holiness, we see ourselves as we truly are. We see our darkness in your light, and we see our corruption in your purity. And so, Father, we pray, O oh, Father, that you would mercifully let us gaze on the glory of your son until our impurity is burned away. Having dwelt in your presence, let us, even as Moses did, coming down from Mount Sinai, let us radiate your glory as your redeemed people before our dark and corrupt generation in which we live. Build and grow your church here among us as you call more people to yourself to be your treasured possession as portraits of both your holiness and your grace. For your great glory and your name and renown, O God, are the desire of our hearts. And for the good of your people, we pray. Amen.